I never take it lightly to be able to stand in someone else's pulpit and deliver the Word of God. And so I hope you're blessed today as we get into the Word. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter number 15. We're going to start reading at verse 11 through to verse 32. And for many of you, this is a scripture, uh, if you're a Christian, that you most likely will be familiar with. It's the passage of scripture that talks about the prodigal son. And I I was just reading it just recently over again, and honestly, I don't know if we could ever truly plumb the depths of the great revelation that lays within the story of the father receiving his wayward son home again. So we're going to take a look at it and maybe look at it with different eyes today. It says this, To illustrate this point further, Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before I die. So before you die. So he kind of sounds like a millennial right here. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. About the time his money ran out, a great famine swept over the land and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. And this is where I already start to like this guy. I'm like, you know, at the beginning, I was like, he's a bit spoiled, he's a bit entitled, but I'm starting to warm up to the prodigal because when times got tough, he went out and got a job. Isn't that a word for somebody right there? He went out and he got a job, and no job was beneath him. The The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. When he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant." So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. Filled with love and compassion, the father ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. But his father said to the servants, Quick, Bring the finest robe. Somebody say the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger. Somebody say a ring for his finger. And sandals for his feet. Say sandals for his feet. This is all going to make sense. And kill the calf we have been fattening. All right, stop there for a second because I feel like it's important to say that God is not a vegan. Nor is he a vegetarian. He's killing the fatted calf to celebrate the return of his wayward son. I had someone tell me once, they said to me, you know, people that don't eat meat, they live for at least 10 years longer than meat eaters. And I couldn't help but think to myself, yes, 10 sad, meaningless, (laughs) baconless years. So I love this scripture because... Amongst many things, it also dispels the myth that God is a vegan. Okay, so kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and has now returned to life. And isn't that good news, friends? 
that we can come back to the Father's house, dead in our sin, dead in dysfunction, dead spiritually, dead in all kinds of derailed regrets and shame, but the Father can bring us back to life. And then the Bible says he was lost, but now he is found, so the party began. Sounds like a C3 church, and if you believe it, give me a holler in this place this morning. We are a church movement of celebration. So I, I want to say that probably one of the greatest uh, one of the greatest joys of being a pastor, of, of a leader, being a leader of a church, is seeing lives transformed. When people come into the church, and you know they may be all come in all messy, and they may come you know, in all their sin and their dysfunction and their brokenness with their regrets, with their shame, uh, you know, in, in remorse over the mistakes they've made, but they can come into the house of God. They can come into the Father's house and their lives can be transformed. Nothing is more exciting for a pastor, for someone like me, for a shepherd to see God change someone's life for the better, change families, change legacies, change histories. It's amazing. But then on the flip side, nothing is more grieving than to see people come into the house of God, accept the Lord as their saviour. But then after a little bit of time, they realise they can't live without their sin. Off they go. They feel caught in a trap of their dysfunction or caught in the sorrow of their pain or their past and they leave the house of God and miss out on the great opportunity that God had given them. Nothing is more grieving and I remember one day kind of having that conversation with God. And then as I was reading through this scripture, I felt the Lord so strongly impress upon me. Leanne, the reason so many Christians don't make it and don't last the distance is because they don't realize that they've had a wardrobe change. I want you to listen clearly to the message here in the story of the prodigal son because it is so important what the father dressed the son in when the son returned to his house. You know, you can come to Jesus as you are, and God will take us as we are. He will take us messy and dysfunctional and full of shame and full of sin. He will take you addicted. He will take you any way you come. But friends, he loves us too much to let us stay that way. So when the son comes home, inevitably he was stinky. He was in that robe. He was covered in pig slop after spending many months away from his father's house with no money, no food, living in this absolute poverty-stricken state, inevitably he came back to the father's house smelling really bad. But I love, what I love about the father is the father receives him as he is. But then the first thing he says to the servants is he says, bring the best robe and put it on my son. Bring the best robe. And we may come in in a pig-slopped garment, but God doesn't let us stay that way. He actually puts a robe of righteousness on our backs I mean, the transformation is amazing. And some of us don't realize that we've had that wardrobe change. And we're still walking through life thinking that we're wearing a pig-slopped garment and behaving like we're still living or walking around in a pig-slopped garment when we've actually had a wardrobe change. You know, sometimes it takes some time for our spirit, or sorry, excuse me, for our minds to catch up with what has already happened in our spirit. I remember as a young married woman, how many married people do we have here? I got married at the age of 17. Okay, so I was a fetal bride. I had my first baby at 19. And, you know, I thought I was a calm, kind of relaxed, chill individual. But there's nothing like marriage to unleash the psycho within, okay? All right? 
So, you know, I, I thought I was this, you know, very placid, agreeable person, but the truth was I'd just never been in an environment before that had bumped me and agitated me hard enough for all the crazy to come flying out. And so I was a 17-year-old teenager who got married to a German. Okay, so that's two very wild rivers colliding right there. And so in the very early years of our marriage, I mean, there was just so much tension, so much tension, and we would argue all the time. And I remember one such time, uh, my husband, it was my 18th birthday, it was the first time I'd celebrated a birthday outside of my parents' house. And so this was his opportunity to really, you know, you know, come in with a, you know, like a, a win, a bang. And so he gives me this beautiful present, this gorgeous box wrapped up in beautiful paper with a big old ribbon. And I pull the paper off excited and on the inside was a thigh master. For my 18th birthday, the first birthday I celebrated as a married woman, I got a thigh master. Now, he didn't do it with any ill intent. You know, I was one of those women who were like, do you think my thighs look fat? I think my thighs look fat. And so he's like, oh, I've got a brilliant idea. She's always talking about how fat her thighs are. I'm going to get her a thigh master. So, I mean, you can imagine the fireworks after that birthday. I mean, that was year one. And you know what I realized? I, I, I was excited about the thought of, you know, a wedding and a honeymoon but I don't know if I'd prepared myself to be a wife. There's a lot of people out there and you're obsessed with the idea of a marriage and a wedding, but you're not sure if you actually know what it, if you actually, you, you probably don't have any realization of what it means to actually be a spouse, a husband, a wife. It's a whole lot more than just a beautiful wedding and a honeymoon in Maui. And so I found myself in this position because marriage is all about being selfless like the Bible says, preferring one another over yourself. But I was like, no, I want it my way. Should it be all about me? So then we had fireworks in our marriage all the time. And now I was one of five girls. I had a strong mother. So I was like, all oh, I am woman, hear me roar. And my husband and I were youth pastors at the time in New Zealand in our first seven years of marriage. And we would just work hard all week. We worked six days. We had one day off, like God, okay? And then this particular... This particular day off, my husband was like, he loves to surf. He was a surfer, a mad surfy. And he gets his surfboard and he goes, babe, I'm going for a surf. I'm going to spend today surfing. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, they're not the plans I had for our day off. We're going to stay home. We're going to watch my favorite reruns of my favorite chick flick. And then we're going to talk about our feelings. That's what's going to happen. He goes, nope. Woman, because I'm not married to a beta male, he had his own plans, he grabbed his surfboard, walked outside, put it down on the grass and started to get the car ready to go off for his day of surfing. I saw that as my opportunity. I stood on the surfboard with my feet precariously near the fins and I said, I'm going to give you one last chance. Are you going to stay home and hang out with me or are you going to go surfing? And I had my foot just precariously near the fins. He knew what was about to happen if he disobeyed me. And he looked at me and his little Adam's apple was going up and down gulping because he knew, he knew how crazy his wife was. And he looks back at me with like the last bit of, you know, dignity he had as a man. And he said, I am going surfing. 
and I got my foot and I slammed it down on those fins and I snapped the fins of his surfboard. I was an absolute raging lunatic. And before you judge me, in my defense, every woman is at least 10% psycho. Every woman. And that's the minimum. That's the minimum. It only goes up from there, okay? Depending on what season and cycle of life she's in, okay? But before you men kind of laugh and whoa, whoa, whoa together, okay, like it's happening on the front row here, you all are at least 10% jerk, okay? Just saying. That's how, that's how it rolls. That's how it rolls. But the sad point is, I got to the point in our relationship where my husband just about despised me. And I remember him saying to me one day, Leanne, I love you, but I don't like you very much. And you know, I, I had kind of believed the lie that I couldn't control myself. Well, I can't control myself. When he makes me mad, I just lash out. And I even blamed him. You created this monster. I was calm until I married you. No, the truth was, it was always there. He was just the activating factor to let the crazy out. And so our marriage was full of tension. And I remember being in such despair because I truly in my heart believed I couldn't change. When he does this, I am just going to respond. I have no control. And I remember when I was in probably one of my most depressed states over the state of our crumbling marriage, when the Holy Spirit came to me and said, Leanne, you've believed a lie about yourself. You have control. In fact, when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit moved into your life. And when the Holy Spirit moves in, he doesn't come in empty-handed. Bible tells us in Galatians chapter 5 that when we become a born-again believer, the Holy Spirit moves into our lives and he comes with a fruit basket. He's a good guest. When he comes over, he doesn't come empty-handed. So in that fruit basket is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Ding, 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 ding. The one thing I thought I didn't have, I was actually pregnant with the seeds of it. I just believed a lie. I believed this whole time that I had no self-control. I couldn't be patient. I was just going to react and behave like a psycho every, th every time things didn't go my way. And it wasn't until I had a revelation that I had a wardrobe change. I didn't know it needed to so much change my behavior. I needed to change the way I viewed myself and then my behavior would follow. And some of us today have been in this conundrum where we think, oh my gosh, I just can't change. This thing that I've been struggling with so long, this dysfunction, this sin, this addiction, this crazy behavior, I'm never going to change. You just need to have a revelation and be transformed by the renewing of your mind and understand that it's not by your works, it's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I put a robe of righteousness on your back. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. Sin does not have control over you anymore. You have control over sin. Here's what the Bible tells us. Look at this. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You are a different person. 
You may have been dealt a bad hand as it relates to your genetic DNA. You know, and there's a theory out there right now that we are born certain ways, that you're born with a dysfunction, that you're born with a bent, and that maybe the rage that was in your father is going to be the rage that's in you, or maybe the alcoholic, addictive personality that crippled your grandparents is in you. Or maybe you were born with a certain sexual preference and the world will tell you you are powerless to change it. Listen, maybe we are born certain ways. Maybe we are. I'm not going to argue with you. That's why Jesus said in the book of John chapter 3, you must be born again. You must be born again. You are now born not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed. You have had a wardrobe change. You are a new creation. The old has passed. The new has come. You are not that way anymore. You've been born again by the Spirit of God. You no longer are controlled by sin. You have control over sin. God said to Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Some of us think that we are the sum total of our most dysfunctional thoughts and bents. It's just not true. You now have power over sin because of what Jesus Christ did for you. You've had a wardrobe change. You're wearing that robe of righteousness and it changes everything. I mean, this is liberating news for us today. For those of us who feel like we've been powerless and hopelessly stuck in the patterns of our sin, God is telling you today, you've been cleansed. You're not that way anymore. Stop letting the devil lie to you about who you are. You are cleansed, you are clean, you are righteous in the sight of God, and now just start walking in a revelation of who you really are in Jesus' name. Can somebody say amen? Amen, amen. Okay, the second thing that the father gave to the son during this wardrobe change, is a ring. Put a ring on his finger. What does the ring signify? The ring signifies the authority of the father handed down to the son or the child. So there's a scripture in the Bible that says this, Luke chapter 10, verse 9, this is Jesus speaking. Look, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. Somebody say, all the power of the enemy. You can walk among snakes and scorpions and crush them, which is pretty good news when you live in Queensland, right? Nothing will injure you. I mean, what a radical statement. And I believe our lack of revelation around this scripture is why so many of us are living beneath, defeated in our lives, in our homes, in our relationships, financially, health-wise, because we have not had a revelation of the authority we have been given as children of God. He put a ring on the finger of the son. Wherever you go, whatever you speak, it is as if I am speaking. And some of us today, I believe, are tolerating in the spiritual what we would never tolerate in the natural because we haven't had a revelation of the authority we carry as sons and daughters of God. So it was many years ago, my husband used to travel a lot as an itinerant minister and it felt like every time he would go away to minister, all hell would break loose in our family. I mean, kids having asthma attacks. We literally had snakes in the house. Like, I don't know if you could have more of a demonic visitation than snakes in the house. So my husband was traveling around Australia, doing Youth Alive meetings, getting people saved left, right and center. I remember saying to myself, well, I suppose I should expect it, you know, because we're out taking ground for the kingdom. And, you know, I should expect that there'll be a level of warfare, you know, an attack against my family. 
And I felt the Lord so strongly rebuke me and say, girl, what is wrong with your theology? I am not a deadbeat dad. Do you really think that I would send your husband out to save the whole world while his family is attacked and ravaged when he turns his back? That's not who I am. He said, stand up in your authority as a daughter of God. And you know what? I started taking communion at home. You know, some of us have really gotten uh, negligent at the point of the power of communion. Some of us think that communion is just like it's something that we do once a month in church and they pile along the little eyedropper of red juice and a little bit of a cracker and yet we're good, we're golden. Oh my gosh, communion is one of the most powerful actions we can, be, uh, we can do as a believer. I heard this saying, it's, it went like this. It says, um, the one who warfares with the blood of Jesus warfares with a weapon that does not know defeat. Glory, hallelujah. And some of us have been tolerating in the spirit what we would never tolerate in the natural. I mean, you think about it. In John 10.10, the Bible tells us that the thief has come, the devil, to kill, steal, and destroy. Okay, so we're now, our families, and if we were sitting down one night watching TV, watching Queensland smash New South Wales in the state of origin, come on, I just had to throw it in there. You're winners. You know this. And, and some guy just walks in, unplugs the television, pulls it, starts walking out, grabs the laptop, pulls the engagement ring and the wedding ring off your wife's finger and just walked out, you wouldn't go, oh, oh, well. Oh, that's, that's a bummer. That sucks. Oh, oh, what a shame. No, you wouldn't do that. You'd get ready for the smackdown, right? And if you're in America, you'd, you'd, you'd enforce your right to bear arms. You'd be standing up for the, the Second Amendment rights and the Constitution. Okay, just thank God you're in Australia. But you take care of business, man, right? So we would, there are some things that we're tolerating in the spirit that we would never tolerate in the natural. And the enemies come in and attack you at the point of your health, the point of your protection, the, the point of your finances. Don't sit back and go, oh, well, I guess it's just part of it, isn't it? It's just part of life. It's part of being a believer. No, God has given you all authority over the power of the enemy. Stand up, man of God. Stand up, woman of God, and start to recognize you wear a ring of authority. Take authority in your home. What happened in the book of Exodus? They got the blood of the lamb and they splattered it on the doorway and the destroying angel had to pass over. He could not touch what was covered by the blood. And there are people here today and your kids are being ravaged with sickness and waking up with terror in the night. You have been empowered to do something about that. Take your authority back and start to release the power of God in your family. What does the Bible tell us? A thousand may fall at our side, 10,000 at our right hand, but it will not come near us. Only with our eyes will we look and see the reward of the wicked. The world may not be prospering around us, but we can prosper because we walk with the authority of our Father in Jesus' mighty name. I believe it, I so strongly believe it, someone is going to go home and start to take authority over things that are not acceptable and things are going to shift in your home. And I believe there are people here today and you've been tithing and you've been giving and you've been faithful and obedient at the point of bringing in the tithe. But the devourer's coming in and you're not rebuking him. Rebuke him. He can't touch your stuff. He can't have your stuff. You've got tithers' rights. 
Tithers' rights. Malachi 3 verse 10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. And then test me now And this, says the Lord of hosts, that I will not fail to throw open the floodgates of heaven and I will rebuke the devourer on your behalf. Now, the devil doesn't follow a code of war, so he'll come in sneakily and try to take stuff. You've got, you got to stand in front of him and say, I am wearing the ring of authority given to me by my heavenly father. Back off, devil, in Jesus' name. Stop stealing my stuff. I call it back in the name of Jesus. Somebody needs to say amen. 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 And the third thing that the father dresses the son in, the Bible says that the father said, put sandals on his feet. The sandals on his feet speaks of purpose. Every place that the sole of your foot shall tread, I have given unto you. And I've got to tell you, that's good news for someone like me. I was raised in a family, one of five daughters. I didn't excel at anything, really. I didn't, definitely didn't excel in academically. And I think, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of expectations around me for my life. And quite honestly, I didn't have that many for myself. I remember coming into the house of God, and I want to tell you that the Father's house is a place where dreams are born. And you may come in, and you may be feeling pretty discouraged at the point of your purpose, but even if you don't have plans for your own life, God has plans for you. In fact, the Bible tells us in Jeremiah 29, 11, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, and they're good plans and not evil to give you a future and a hope. And i got to tell you, I've gone places that I could never, ever have dreamed of going in my own strength. God has opened doors for me that I could have never opened for myself. Love it if the band would come as I come to a close. I mean, it's been amazing. I've hopped from nation to nation, a little girl from rural New South Wales, a farmer's daughter. No great expectations over my life, and yet... I've been privileged enough to serve God in three different nations, spoken to thousands of people, declaring the goodness of God around the world. It is amazing. A 10th grade education, are you kidding me? It's unbelievable. I had someone say to me once, they said to me, because my, my personal assistant has a, her doctorate, and they said, oh, what does it feel like to have a personal assistant that is way more educated than you? I know, hilarious. That's why you should always pray for wit and a good comeback. So I went, amazing. How incredible is that? She has her doctorate and yet she's working for me. She's getting my coffee. Isn't that amazing? I'm telling you, God has designed you with a purpose and an intent. You are not an extra in this world. You have a main part. You have a part to play in building the kingdom of God. And God's going to take the little you have. He's going to fan it to flame. And he's going to cause you to do great things for the kingdom. Maximus Aurelius in the prophetic movie Gladiator said this, what we do in this life echoes through eternity. And right now there is a prevailing spirit across the nation of Australia and New Zealand that's something we don't really see in the US and that's why for me it's been so distinctive on my return home. And it's that tall poppy syndrome. Hey, just remain average. Just remain mediocre. Don't you put your head up, buddy, or we'll lop it off. Oh, you think you're better than us, eh, Bluey? No, you're not. Get back in your place. We don't want to step out because we don't want to be people to call us a bragger or think that, well, you know, we're better than us. Listen, it's Bible that you prosper. 
It's God that you excel. It's God that you are the head and not the tail, above and not beneath. It's the heavenly Father, the stamp of the kingdom on the inside of you that's actually going to say, I'm going to excel when others don't prosper. I'm going to. I'm going to take ground because I'm a ground taker in Jesus' name. I mean, is there not a cause? We're hearing today about a great piece of land here in Kiwana Waters. So you can expand and build and see lives added to the kingdom of God. Well, I just want enough just to get by. Just if I can look after my family, have a nice holiday in the caravan once a year, I'll be happy. Now listen, go ahead and excel. Go for that promotion. Start that business. Step out in faith. Believe God for your life to amount to really great things. He will amplify your steps. Nobody says you have to keep every bit of money that you earn. You can sow it into the church. <laughs> Listen, I'm sure there's places here in this church where they are going to have great use for every bit of money that is extra in your life, for the glory of God, for the building of the kingdom. But what I want to tell you today is that God has a great purpose for your life. And you may have stumbled in and thought to yourself, my gosh, I just feel like my life is going nowhere. I don't know what I'm here for. Sadly, I heard a statistic just recently about um, 80% of suicides in this nation and in the nation of America are done by men, men in their 40s and 50s who have lost their sense of purpose. That's why church is so important because this is the place where the Father puts sandals on your feet and sets you up to run into the destiny that God has specifically designed for you. When we were in South Auckland, and I'm coming to a close, there was a beautiful man that received Christ in our congregation many, many years ago. I guess it was close to 20 years ago now. And South Auckland is a pretty, uh, pretty rough part of town. And uh, at this particular season in our church's life over there, a lot of gang members were getting saved. And this guy, Lucky, he was a gang member in a gang called the Mongrel Mob. He was covered in tattoos, wore head-to-toe leather, was missing a few teeth because of pub fights, pub brawls. And he came to church and you know, by the grace of God, he got saved like a powerful salvation experience, got delivered from a whole lot of evil spirits. And here he was in church and he would just sit every Sunday wide-eyed with his eyes open to this new life that he had in God. And our pastor was preaching a message similar to this where he was talking about how God was going to use your strengths and abilities to build the kingdom. And he could take whatever you've got and he could fan it to flame and use it to the glory of God. And so, like he's thinking to himself, well, I'm good at organizing and people fear me and uh, I like telling people what to do, so I'm going to become an usher. So he joined the usher team and within a couple of weeks, because we were a church of great growth but then great need, we made him head usher. Sometimes wisdom has to go by the wayside when you're in an emergency. So we made lucky head usher and he was... Uh, in service one day and in the midst of the service there was a man just sitting in about the center there and all of a sudden he just started crying out he was very very demonized getting very agitated by the the spirit of God in the meeting and he made a ran a run for the stage made a run for our senior pastor and you got to understand that for an usher that is the best day of their entire life <laughs> like they are begging hoping wishing on a star that someone will just flip out so that they can use their gifts for Jesus, so that they can be violent with a holy cause, okay? 
So this is, this is happening for Lucky as he runs forward. You could just see the glint in Lucky's eye, like, Esther, I was born for such a time as this. Here I come to save the day. And he runs forward and he grabs this guy in a headlock. And then he runs with him out of the meeting, through the swinging doors, using his head as a battering ram to open the door. Now, by this time, friends, what is happening with Lucky and this guy out in the foyer, out in the parking lot, is way more interesting than what is happening on the inside. So service ends and we rush out to see what's going to happen next. And as we walk out, we see newly saved, four weeks born again, leather-clad, tattoo-clad, half-toothless Lucky with this guy in a headlock repeatedly punching him in the stomach, saying, stop! disrespecting the effing pasta. <laughs> Lucky was using his gifts for Jesus. But thank God, the God that had begun a good work in him was faithful to bring it to completion. And to this day, Lucky is still a servant in the house of God. He got married to his de facto wife. They have four beautiful daughters. I am telling you, there is no end to what God can do with a life when you surrender it to him. You have been created with a purpose and an intent. There was not a lack of destinies when you were born. God wasn't scrambling around in heaven going, oh, Gabriel, do we have a destiny, a dream, a plan for this one? Oh, gosh, we're... we're Plum out of destinies. No. Oh, you know what? Before you were born, he knew you. All the days were fashioned for you before there was even one of them. I know there's someone in here and you've been discouraged and you're depressed and you've even thought about taking your life. Don't do it. The world needs you. God has a plan for your life. And today, God is going to flan to fame the great purpose and plan and intent he put you together for in Jesus' name. The Father's house... It's a house of transformation. It's a house where the broken come in and find healing, restoration, and a purpose beyond their pain. You have been saved out of darkness into his glorious light. You've not just been saved out of something. You've been saved into something, a great future. And God wants you to, to use you in this hour, in this day, in this church to build his kingdom, to build your family, to build your life. You're going to put your head on the pillow at any night, every night. You're going to feel exhausted but full of joy. Oh, oh my gosh, what a day. I worked hard, but I'm telling you, it was all worth it. I'm building the kingdom. I'm building my life. I'm building the family of God.